knows, bro? Specific dates don't matter, just the greater historical shapes. Here's the history of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. To the now. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Slow Learners, Episode 5. Covering Gravity's Rainbow, Section 1, Chapters 1 through 8, Inclusive. That's right, we're doing a whole section this episode. It's a doozy. Hello, Leute. Uh, so far in Slow Learners, the Gravity's Rainbow podcast that you're listening to at present, we've tried to be pretty kind of slow and deliberate about going through the action of the novel, and it has been action-packed. Uh, but this episode, we're going to try to do something ambitious, which is summarize and talk about the entire second section of the book. This section is titled Un Perm au Casino Ermengoring. Or in Quebecois, French, would be "en bar ma casino" or "mangoring." <laughs> mm. uh, and for those who asked, "perm" is shorthand for "permission," which is the French military word for a furlough or a little R and R. But it should be "un permé." So Pynchon got that wrong, Mister Research. Maybe there's a deep clue in his getting it wrong. Something that will open the whole novel up. True. Maybe he should get a clue about oh. learning how to speak French. Maybe. Ah, I'm just kidding, Tom. I know you're listening. <laughs> um, so as was mentioned late in the last section of the book, Slothrop has been kind of shipped off to the French Riviera by pointsmen. He set up at a casino resort that has been named after the Nazi party honcho Ermann Goring. Goering. Uh, but this is in the dying days of the war, so the Nazis have withdrawn, and the resort is teeming with allied decadents and military personnel. Mm. And this includes Slothrop who's with his friends slash handlers, the Englishman Teddy Bloat and Tantivy Mucker Maffick. Uh, he thinks that he's basically on vacation. I don't think he really thinks that, but, you know, that's the auspice. Uh, but it's really part of some larger scheme, <laughs> pronounced correctly, being perpetrated <laughs> by pointsmen. Uh, yeah, there's that line that pointsman has in the last section. was like, I hope Slothrop is on the Riviera fed and well-fucked, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of being well-fucked, uh, it's here that Slothrop encounters Katja Borgesius, the Dutch double agent, who was recalled and dispatched on some new mission, which is presumably this mission. Uh, Slothrop comes across her on a beach where she's being attacked by a giant octopus, and the octopus is none other than Gregory, the devil fish that Pointsman was training at the White Visitation. Grisha. Grisha. Uh, remember, Gregory was watching the tape of Katja, so he was presumably being kind of programmed for this whole attack. Uh, in this big bout of heroics, Slothrop rescues her, and the two immediately start this sexual relationship. Uh, you know, Slothrop, he's not a total idiot. He assumes that this is some plot and that he's playing a role in it, but he doesn't really seem to care. Uh, he's content to just party at the casino and yeah. wear stupid clothes and have sex with Katja a lot. Why he wouldn't not? want to. Hey, he deserves it. Um, <laughs> one, night, <laughs> one night after 
after falling asleep, after he's had sex with Katya, he finds that his clothes and all his documents have been stolen. Uh, so he's basically stranded with no identity. He dresses up as a British officer, and then his handlers disappear, and they're replaced by Stephen Dodson Truck, who you may recall from the last couple chapters, mm. is the husband of Nora Dodson Truck, who we met in the last section of the book, and she's cheating on him with Carol Eventier, mm. who is... Uh, Someone. He's the control <laughs> of... Peter Sachs. Uh, Stephen arrives and Sothrop's uh, holiday comes to an end. It's school time, baby. He's drilled on German runology, the technical strains of the German tongue, and in advanced ballistics and rocketry. Uh, one night, while drunk, Stephen hints at a larger overarching conspiracy. He talks about this passionless group that he refers to only as they, with a capital T. Anyway, shortly after this big they is revealed, Katja herself disappears in the middle of the night. Then we flash forward, or I guess maybe flash sideways, or cut away to, the white visitation, where Pointsman and his crew are fretting their lack of funding, now that the whole Slothrop penis rocket program seems to be falling apart. Brigadier Pudding, who you'll recall as a dutiful listener, was the World War I veteran who abhors Pointsman's mad science experiments. He's also proving a bit of an issue. So Pointsman dispatches Brigadier Pudding by getting Katya to dress up as an SM goddess of death named Domina Nocturna. Mm. And she whips and beats Pudding in the night as he kind of grovels before her. And she also uh, feeds him her shit. And piss. And piss. And he eats the shit and he eats the piss. And there's this the yummy descriptions of all the poo being eaten. Yes. Uh, there is. It does call back to him being like, oh, I miss the days of Passchendaele when men reeked of shit. Well, you're getting more than your fill, sir. Um, we drift back to the casino where Slothrop's paranoia is growing. Uh, he meets a man named Hillary Bounce who works for the multinational Shell Oil. Uh, Slothrop is developing this kind of conspiracy about the links between Shell, the Axis powers, and the Allies. These are links which seem to kind of betray the notion that the war was some big conflict between ideologically opposed national entities. Shell as in... Shell oil. Like the gas company. Yeah, like where you get gas, where they have the big shell on the oh. side. Uh, the corporations are playing all sides. You know, remember, the real war is a celebration of markets, after mm. all. Um, when he's Slothrop is given this manifest of rocket parts that he's going through, and he comes across a weird line item. Uh, it's an order for a plastic chemical called Imipolex G, which is developed for the multinational chemical cartel IG Farben by one Laszlo Jamf. IG Farben. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye on those tricky guys. They are tricky. And you'll recall that Laszlo Jamf is the doctor who experimented on Slothrop as a child. So he's like, what the hell is going on with this Imipolex G stuff? Uh, there's also a reference to a part called the SG-1 that is singled out. Uh, using Hillary Bounce's teletype machine, which is kind of like a proto-fax, uh, he poses as Bounce and requests more info on all this stuff. He learns that the Imipolex was being ordered for a device called the Schwarzgerät, uh, that's the SG, presumably, and the SG-1. And that the Schwarzgerät is part of a rocket with the curious serial number 0000. The quad zip, I call it mm. in my head. Uh, or wait. Quint. Quint zip. Cinco <laughs> zip. Uh, or funf zip. Ah. Slothrop goes to a party where everyone is eating uh, hollandaise sauce that has hash in it. Sounds fucking gross, frankly. Yeah, that's normal. Uh, and he meets a prolific black market forger named Blodgett Waxwing, one of my favorite Pinchon names. I'm the shadow of the Waxwing slain. What's that from? 
It's from Nabokov Palefire. Oh, shit. Just a little literary reference for you. Nice. Um, and Blodgett Waxwing gives Slothrop a snazzy new zoot suit. There's kind of a interesting, sad story where we learn about the history of the zoot suit. Uh, <laughs> Slothrop returns to the casino, and he learns that his friend Tantavi Muckermaffic has died, although he acknowledges that this could be a uh, lie put in a conspicuous copy of the London Times mm. that was presumably planted for him. This is where Slothrop's brain is kind of like playing tricks, where he basically doesn't know if anything happening is quote, real, or if it's all just like a plot. He's freaking out, He's man. freaking, baby. Uh, but then suddenly he realizes that there's no one really watching him anymore. Tantamy Bucker Maffrick is gone. Uh, Katja is gone. Steven Dodson Truck is gone. Mm. He has all this info about this rocket and its parts and its connections to his own past as an infant. He also has Blodgett Waxwing. Mm. And Waxwing gave him this address in Nice. Uh, so Slothrop styles himself as a British journalist named Ian Scuffing. Right. Right. Ian Scuffing, eh? And he goes to Nice. And then from Nice, he goes to Zurich. Mm. There's dreams and songs. The Loonies on Leave song is in this section. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets to Zurich, and it's a real kind of like Graham Greene novel scene. Like, it's teeming with spies and war profiteers. And the whole climate is really bad for Slothrop's paranoia. He meets this Argentine anarchist named Francesco Squaladozzi, mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe. Uh, and he is there to reshape post-war Germany which is now called The Zone. So this kind of introduces the idea that the war is ending or over, and there's people already seizing on uh, the post-war landscape to try to run whatever scheme they have up their sleeve. Scheme. Scheme. Slothrop uh, ruminates a bit on his family's past and his history as part of a clan who initially opposed the encroachment of industrialism and capitalism, only to become functionaries of industrialism and capitalism. Mm. Uh, he meets a guy named Mario Schweita, who's ah. a former employee of Sandoz Labs, where Laszlo Jamf worked, and he gives him some information about Laszlo Jamf. Sandoz Labs, incidentally, is where Albert Hoffman discovered LSD in hey. the 1930s. Wait, in real life? In real life. Oh. Uh, and I think that's mentioned offhand in this section where he's like, pensions like Sandoz Labs, where every school child knows Dr. Hoffman made his important discovery. <laughs> Wait, John. Yeah. Do you think Pynchon ever did acid? Man, this book is like doing acid, <laughs> dude. I feel like I'm on freaking 5-methoxy uh, DMT when I read this shit. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Uh, no, I'm sure he did acid. Well, yeah. ask him when we have him on the show. Yeah. Um, Tommy. Tom. You ready for that? Are you tripping, dude? Yeah. I'll be, I'll be in there in a second, guys. <laughs> Over the bathroom. <laughs> this section ends back at the White Visitation. The war, at least the war in Europe, is over, and pointsmen, Roger Mexico, Jessica, and Katja are having a picnic. Oh, kind of sweet. That's nice. But it's also fucking eerie because Pointsman's losing his mind. Mm. Uh, we learn that Brigadier Pudding is suffering from E. coli poisoning, which is presumably <laughs> from all the shit that he's been eating. Uh, uh, Shit-eating uh, grin on that Pointsman's face. Shit-eating frown. Although he must love the taste if he keeps going back night after night. Uh, Pointsman is going berserk. Megalo, I believe it's described. Uh, he hires men to confirm uh, the Slothrop sexual encounters, the ones that were on the map in part one of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out most of them were totally made up. What? Boy, I know. This freaking map that is like the motive the engine, MacGuffin. Yeah, of the first section of the book is a total 
lie. What? There was no cause and effect relationship between Slothrop having sex and the V2 rockets, but Pointsman is now losing it. He hates that this is the case because he was so invested in it. So he hatches this new plot to recover Slothrop, who seems to have slipped from his control. Ah. Uh, and elsewhere, we kind of hear rumors that the Herrero Schwartz Commando, mm. uh, the ones depicted in the Operation uh, Black Wing newsreel videos in the last section, are actually sweeping through Europe. Wait, they're real? They are real, baby. The Schwartz Commando and the Zone Herrero are on the march. Fantasy is bleeding into reality. Or maybe the two have totally switched places. Or maybe they were never even discreet in the first place. Yo. Well, Asher, my friend, ah. let me ask you, yeah. what do you think of the second section of Gravity's Rainbow, Un Peum or Casino Amangoring? <clears throat> um, I mean, long story short, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a gift to the reader. Mm. Um, I think like, I'm not sure if I had just read this novel without reading anything about it, if I would have even discerned that Slothrop was our sort of hero. I mean, I think he would have been assumed to be someone the novel was preoccupied with. Um, but it's revealed in this second section that, yes, alas, he is our sort of hero. Um, and we actually get to track him for 100 pages as he maneuvers and, you know, uh, detects and inspects and runs away and makes contact like like you said this is a very grim green-esque section of the novel and i think just in the sense of it coming after 200 or 180 pages or whatever it is of like confusingness and this and that it feels like a real respite yeah, and I think you're right about the idea that, like, okay, this is when the story becomes Slothrop's story. Because I think if anyone knows anything about this book, it's, like, the basic logline is, like, there's a dude whose dick predicts rocket strikes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is Slothrop. So it's, like, you, I, I think if you go in, you kind of get the sense that he's vaguely heroic, but certainly not the main character. Sure. But, yeah, here it kind of takes over. And here we kind of get into, like, first of all... Uh, so much plot, right? Yes. Like we find out about the zero 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 rocket. Mm -hmm. We find out about the Schwarzgarat. I mean, the quest for these things is going to give shape to the rest of the book. Yeah, uh, and also Slothrop's sort of operational paranoia. Yeah, I mean, paranoia is obviously a big theme for Pinchon, like in this book and all his books. Uh, and this is when it really kind of like starts seizing Slothrop. And I think it seizes the reader in a different way where it's like, when you read this book, you're like, okay, is this connected? What is going on? How does this thing relate to that thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the book is almost kind of like instilling a paranoic mindset in the reader. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, you're constantly wondering like, what is the significance of yeah. this or that? And I feel like this section is almost like a little gift to that paranoic because you're like, oh, like things are being set in place. Like, and we finally have a character who we can latch onto who is going to act as the guide the sort of stand-in for the audience who has to parse through all this stuff and figure stuff out and yeah you know slothrop isn't necessarily good at it but he he does have a design you know writing if you know a fiction 101 workshop says your character must have a desire right and whether they get that desire or whether they learn to live without it is you know the mission of all fiction and i think 
there's something conventional going on in the second part here, which is that we get our main character, we get his desire, his, his desire is to figure out what are the greater forces acting around him, what do they want from him, and does he want to... Like, what is what would be best for him? Is he is he supposed to align himself with these people who are sort of manipulating and maneuvering him? Or is he supposed to go into hiding, adopt a different identity, and sort of go rogue and figure things out for himself? Yeah, and I think like, this idea word is overused, but, like, he is a bit of a cipher up until this point where it's like he understands that these people are all kind of, like, interested in him in a conspiratorial and clinical way, but he doesn't seem to care. Like, when this chapter opens, he's like, oh, so what? I'll get some sun and I'll... Get some have sex and party yeah. and drink and blah 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 blah. Yeah. But then eventually, like when he finds out uh, that the Impolex about the Impolex and this rocket it's connected to Laszlo Jamf, that's when something seems to really switch in him. Yes. Where he's like, Okay, there's something in here about like my personal history that I find important. And it's right. also at this point in the book where it's like, especially when everyone kind of retreats and he's on his own and all he has is this information from Blodgett Waxwing, that he starts ostensibly making his own decisions. Yeah. Now, is is that true? Mm. Is he making his own decisions or like is the address he was given, is everyone he encounters part of some sort of uh, plot? This is something that he constantly struggles with and I think as a reader we struggle with it too. But, you know, I think we can say nonetheless and like unproblematically this is when things start happening in yeah. the book. I mean, I think even when you're reading it you're like, why couldn't we just have started here? And I think there's an obvious answer to that question. Because you have to set up so much to understand why this quest he is starting to go on for the specifics of this new rocket. Is it a new rocket? Uh, the zero 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 or uh, Funfnal is uh, is it, it is a V two. It okay, is a V two, okay, okay. but it's like uh, the the serial number is five zeros, and it presumably has this new. In plastic ingredient in it that's yes. different than the previous V2? Yeah, or? like the, the Schwarzgerat is like a component of it that nobody knows what it is yet. I mean, that will all be revealed. All right. I think okay. we should just slow down a little bit okay. and just talk about the octopus scene. Well, it's, it's, it's like obviously set up for him to have this like daring do heroic episode. Yeah, and I think like just if we're talking about like the science of literature or something like that, like here's something, here's a scene where we see elements that have been introduced mysteriously before now come to a head. Yeah, and you're right when you say it's a gift because these things are kind of being paid off. Like yeah, earlier you could be like, why? what is this octopus watching and why? It's stupid. But yeah. now we know that he's watching films of Katya, presumably so he could recognize her and know to attack her, which he's being trained to do right. as part of this whole skit. Yes, like, like the actions of the White Visitation, Pisces, whatever the hell is going on, they do actually have some methodology. There, it is going to pay off in some way. Octopus is conditioned to attack Katya to induce Slothrop to then save her so that Katya could then honeypot Slothrop, right. which of course fails. Right. But that's the whole organization here. There, There's another thing I want to bring up, which is like, you know, when you say it's a gift, like I say, I do think that's true, but there's also uh, as many ways in which he like, cheats the reader in a conventional sense like finding out that the map is totally imagined and mm -hmm. that there's no relationship between Slothrop and these women and the rockets I mean that is like a thing that is kind of driving the plot for the first 200 yeah, yeah, pages yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it's like oh it's all bullshit uh, which I think is an interesting choice and I think it like it comes at a good point in the book because <laughs> as the action of the novel is getting going as Slothrop and the reader are having difficulty parsing what is quote really happening from what is a conspiracy yeah uh it's encouraging you to keep your mind open to the possibility that everything that we think is happening could 
end up falling well, apart. Well, you know, like what you're saying actually like makes me think of a sort of the three stages of a Socratic dialogue. Are you familiar with this? Dialogue? You got your thesis and then <laughs> you got your... antithesis uh-huh. and then your uh, synthesis. I mean, that's that's Hegel and Marx, but it is close to that. And right. It's when, okay, so Socrates was this crazy old man who would walk around the, the streets of Greece basically pestering people. The Agora. Yes, the Agora, pestering people and annoying them right. because he thought he knew better. But the way those dialogues would happen was he would come up to someone and at first he would sort of pump them up. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know what you're talking about. He would ask them questions and they would answer and he'd be like, okay, that makes sense. That would be the first part. The second part of the Socratic dialogue would him being would be a sort of deconstructionist part of the dialogue, which is when he tears down all these myths that these people believe, usually ontologically, like believe how the world works. He would be like, no, that's not actually true. That's bullshit, that's bullshit, that's bullshit. Leaving them at the end of the second stage of the dialogue in a sort of dark night of the soul, right? um, where all their beliefs have been deconstructed and they're left only with nihilism. But then in the third section of the Socratic dialogue, Socrates is like, hey, I'm as dumb as you are. I don't know anything either. Why don't we strive together now to create a new understanding of the world together, you know? Right. And I think Pynchon is doing that in the sense that the first part is setting up, like, this system based around Slothrop's map and the connections between Slothrop's erections and the rocket strikes. This second part of the section deconstructs that. It's all bullshit, yada, yada, yada. And then the third part of the novel, The Zone or whatever. Yeah is like the post-structural, chaotic, tabula rasa world in which we can create some sort of new meaning or right. something like that. Does that sound... I buy that. Okay. <laughs> I think it's funny what you say about Socrates. I don't think a lot of people got to the third part with him where he's yeah, like, hey, yeah. let's work together because they basically killed him for being annoying. They did. Yeah. They did. Um, which, if being annoying is a crime, lock me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to say in this book, there's a part in the summary that I didn't touch on, but when they go to the White Visitation, there's that scene with uh, Webley Silvernail, who's like the janitor at the White Visitation. Yes. And there's like this song and dance where like these lab mice are singing about how they want to be free. He has this line where he's like, you know, I'd set you free if, if I knew how, but it's not even free out there. You know, everything is being uh, subsumed to preserve an elite few who are the loudest to theorize on freedom, but the least free of all. And it's like, I always find it interesting in this book where it's like, and whatever, it's just like classic. Don't I say whatever. Well, it's always, like, it's always like the lowliest schlubs who have like the most insight, you know? Yeah, like that's a, got- a sort of Shakespearean tactic. Exactly. Okay, so I don't think we have much to say about Katya and Octopus and Katya coming together with Slothrop. That's all pretty straightforward. She's honeypotting him, whatever. Um, but following that, we sort of flash into this guy, Dr. Porkievich. Do you yes. find him important at all? Uh, I think it's interesting because his name's Porkievich and Pinchon has like a porky pig thing. Yeah. Uh, and also... Uh, Slothrop stutters like Porky Pig in this chapter. Mm. And also some people think that uh, Pinchon has a stutter. And that's one of the reasons he doesn't like to be in public. Yeah. I mean, Porkievich is loosely a guy who was involved in the Bukharin conspiracy. Um, I don't know exactly what that is, but I know Bukharin was like an opponent of Stalin and got purged because of it. Yeah. Porkievich is like a Russian uh, defector, basically. In chapter three of this section, we meet Stephen Dodson Truck. In contrast to our previous acquaintance with Nora Dodson Truck, can you just remind us who the hell that is? Yeah, so he's Nora's husband who's being cuckolded, but he's basically there to just like drill Slothrop on 
all kinds of German stuff. Yeah. So Slotham is being trained for something. But, like, the main thing is he's being trained about, like, ballistics and rocketry. He's reading German manual, rocketry manual. Exactly. And, and it, finding himself getting boners while reading them. Exactly, yeah. So which, maybe maybe that's part of it. That, I mean, I think this section is sort of being, like, Slotham's tr- starting to figure out his conditioning, his previous experimentation by Yomph. He starts yeah. to have glimmers of memories about that here. Um and you know he's had this he had he was he's been searching for his friend Tantavi who he finds out is dead yeah this new guy Steven comes um and then they play this like drinking game which apparently like someone later says like ruins everything i think Kantia says like right. that drinking game ruined everything is that because we're supposed to perceive that Slothrop through his charm and guile is like winning over all these people who are supposed to be manipulating him and then they just bow out of the experiment because they like him too much or something? That and uh, Steven gets drunk and he's like, you know, even above Pointsman, there's this passionless group that'll make your blood run cold. Mm. Like that when he refers to like the capital T, they. And it's like as soon as he's like utters that, he disappears right. or is disappeared. Yeah. I think that's what's being implied, that he like let too much slip uh, while he was okay, wasted. Okay. Yes, okay. Steven tells him that his Slothrop's Erections are of tremendous interest to Fitzmaurice House, House, which is the Foreign Office Political Intelligence Department. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I think we already kind of know that by right, now. Right, right. That but Slothrop is becoming aware. Yeah, exactly. And also the idea that, like, oh, it's not just this kind of the white visitation slash Pisces, this little kind of uh, cabal run by pointsmen. But, like, you know, Slothrop's boners are now basically like a national security concern. <laughs> yeah. Moving on, just like Steven and Tantivy and Teddy bloat, um, Katya then disappears after like a last sexual escapade where she tries to karate chop mm-hmm. Slothrop and then they have a sort of rough but interesting sexual encounter and then she leaves. I think like there's just this sort of general sense in this section that everyone is leaving. Right. The war is ending. Things are moving on into this new zone. Yeah. Um, and that Slothrop is like becoming a little bit marooned. Right. Although again, like to to you know, tweak that a bit, it's to say, you know, I think when you read this, it's like, okay, Slothrop is finally making self directed decisions. But it's like he's being drilled on technical German and then finds a manifest of rocket parts that's written in technical German where he finds clues about Imi Polex and the Schwarzgarat and stuff like that. So to what extent is that even an accident, you know? Yeah. Like to what extent is the placement of Hillary Bounce, a shell oil man with a teletype that can get information with his rockets, him being at the casino, to what extent is is that an accident? You know, this is what I mean about how it puts you in like a sort of paranoid space yeah. as a reader where it's like, well, even these things that seem incidental or organic or natural are part of some plot. Of course, they're literally part of the plot. Right. Of the novel. But like there's also something interesting here happening because as we're getting all these answers, like it's barely in there, but the war is over now. Right. Yeah. It ends. It's a, it's announced that it's over uh, back at the white visitation. Like yeah. we, we head into the sort of uh, spring winter spring right. of 45 spring. yeah uh and ve day was what april something 1945 mm-hmm. may 8th ah. 1945 mm-hmm. uh so yeah this kind of follows from like uh winter through spring so yeah the war's ending i mean we get a sense that the war is already like being won by virtue of the fact that we're at a french casino named after a nazi that there's no nazis at anymore <laughs> yeah uh so you know in the quote real world of the book uh america and Britain and the Soviets would be pushing through 
Germany and right. France. Okay, so in the fourth chapter of this section, we go back briefly to the white visitation. Yeah. Away from the casino Hermann Goering. Um, and we finally sort of see this group called the Slothrop Group. Yes. Right? And we haven't seen anything named that yet. This Slothrop Group has fallen on hard times. They're running out of funding, and they're also running out of faith. Right. Um, I guess that sort of plays up against this general idea of like the dissolution of the war, the dissolution of their mission. Um, but we still have like 400 pages of the book left. But it's also stuff like, I mean, this happened in real life too, where it's like after the war, when the OSS turns into the CIA, it's like Mm. you kind of have to find an excuse for, uh, these people in the sort of three-letter agencies or the kind of uh, secret Kabbalistic groups, you kind of have to think of a reason to keep the war going on so that yeah. you can keep doing your research or sort of expanding your control. Like, it's easy to expand uh, control and, and seize assets and consolidate power within the structure of a world war. Yeah. But after it, that stuff becomes a bit more troubling. Like, you know, the amount of stuff that people threw money at during the war, like, okay, maybe pointsman can be like, fine, I can do this behavioral research under the auspices of, of it being important to the military. Right. Now that's not going to fly. Uh, yeah. So he has to find, you know, another way to do it. And this is kind of the thing that he's sweating. Well, in this fourth chapter of this section, he has a sort of, he's, he's sort of had this realization, and here's the quote, that there is a life force operating in nature. Still, there is nothing so analogous in a bureaucracy nothing so mystical it all comes down as it must to the desires of the individual men or of individual men um the pointsman's having that epiphany i'm just curious like is that like sort of a mission statement of the novel or something like that i mean when you say it like in a sentence it almost (laughs) makes the book sound stupid (laughs) but it's like the fact that there is like an elite group that is setting the agenda for all of global affairs. And yet the elite group is made up just of individual men. Right. I think like it's almost like contributing to the deconstruction of the idea that there's a secret hand and that the secret hand is like intelligently moving things. Around. Right, right, right. Like the idea that there's literally some sort of like force called capitalism or the market. Or, that like, or the CIA. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, no, these are all just like the decisions of individuals being yeah, enforced mean, upon people. I think it's a popular theory about the CIA CIA that it's not like uh, a unilateral unilateral right thing where everyone's briefed like the MK Ultra program which obviously we talked about right where it's like you know James Angleton and these people are like they're doing what yeah. like at least feigning ignorance <laughs> but I also believe that to a certain extent they were probably ignorant of it yeah. because the whole point of a secret service means that there's like levels of insulation even yeah. within those operations. I mean, that's Jean Lacar right there. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting too, because we were talking off mic about Don DeLillo earlier and it's like DeLillo always talks about history in this almost like Hegelian sense where it's like history itself is like a force, right. like a spirit that sort of like moves through the ages and has its own sort of intelligence. And I don't think Pinchon really believes that. Like he talks about ideas of like history and power in the abstract, but he knows that they're more than abstract, mm-hmm. that they are ultimately you know, being determined by individual people, you know? So the things, the, and in fact, I would go further to say that the mystification of those things into being like, like you say, the invisible hand or something like that Mm -hmm. is itself just like a a form of a trick, right? Mm, It's an obfuscation. It's an obfuscation. It makes it more difficult to point the finger at the people who are doing it, right? Right, right, right. Just in general, like the novel is about World War II, 
Axis vs. Allies. And yet pretty much all of our drama is about opposing forces within the Allies, mm-hmm. infighting. And specifically, you know, Slothrop's whole paranoia about the them. The them isn't the Nazis. The no. them is the Allies. Yeah, or some group above the Allies. I mean, I think that, like, when we get into the Shell Oil stuff, that's when we start developing this idea that it's like there is a master conspiracy called capital and industrialization and financialization that exists above the level of nations, right? Mm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I do think that like uh, there is a sort of jacuse element where it's like, uh, you know, the things that are being perpetrated on the ally side are as violent, as inane, as stupid as, you know, children are taught in school, everything the Nazis were doing. Right, right. so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's deliberate. But, you know, when we get into the next section of the book, that itself will be complicated more. Like, international actors come into the novel in a way, like, whether it's the Herrero, whether it's Chicharine and the Soviets, mm. uh, you whether it's uh, Squalidorzi, where the fuck his name is, the Argentine yeah. anarchist. Mm-hmm. Like, you start to see kind of global forces descending uh, into the scene, in, even in this section. Yes, and that seems to be like a furthering of what we have talked about in previous episodes about a new era, the era of death beyond the zero. Yeah. The, like the, the nation, the agents of nations dissolving seems to just be another part of that. Definitely. And like, you know, the again, the agents of nations becoming like, you know, agents of a sort of global capitalist order. Yes. I mean, to use an image from the section, it's like the octopus like the uh the tentacles that sort of touch everything yeah um and it's funny because like in the end of the, well, it's not funny but in the end <laughs> uh, but in the end of the war when like a lot of like nazi commandants and stuff were being like discovered they'd be like no 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 like i run a soap factory i run a chemical factory right. like i'm a good person it's like yeah but your chemical factory is making deadly <laughs> zyklon b gas right. you know like this idea i mean whatever it's not even an insight but the idea that the holocaust specifically was and i'm using this in quotes a triumph of industrialization mm-hmm. and mechanization uh is, is something that like you know, fucking Adorno talks about endlessly that loads of people talk about. And again, I don't mean try it because it was good. I mean that like people have viewed it as the logical expression of whether it's like the Fordist model of manufacturing. The uh, apotheosis of capitalism. Yeah. And like likewise with these like lethal chemicals, you know, in the same way that like all the human ingenuity and know-how about ballistics, all this mysticism about mankind touching the stars is really just like a framework for killing people with fucking rockets. All this sort of like chemical know-how is being used, you know, to create poisons and gases. All right, so we follow him to Nice and we get a, a long and very sort of fun but confusing section about Slothrop operating sort of rogue in this new realm of post-war intelligence feuding and do you want to just like explain what exactly he does? So he goes to Nice in a zoot suit. He meets some people there just I don't really get it. What happens? Uh, yeah, he goes to Nice, like posing as Ian Scuffing. He meets like one of Blodgett Waxwing's contacts. And Blodgett Waxwing is a French forger. Yeah, who okay. Slothrop meets at the party where people are doing hash and but talk. Is, sorry, I'm sorry. But is, okay. is Waxwing connected to intelligence? I don't. Or is he part of a criminal underground? Not at this point. He's part of some criminal underground, okay. as far as we know. Uh, but, you know, 
uh, wa- wa- people like Waxwing or uh, Gerhard von Goll, who will appear, known as Der Springer, are sort of uh, these black market figures. These people who work in the underground. Colonel Chicklets and Major Marvy <laughs> will play this role later on, where it's like uh, you have these people who are kind of, for lack of a better word, entrepreneurs who are trying to like gain control of the chaos of the post-war right. period. Yeah, and we meet a lot of these people, Squalidozy and... You know, some people tell Slotherp he doesn't need to go back to London. Some people say he has to move on to Zurich. It seems like we're meeting a bunch of new characters and new people, and I'm just sort of wondering, like, why you think that's happening. Uh, well, a, a lot of them will, like, pop back up, but I think it's, like, the that section, the sections in Nice and Zurich, and, like, Slotherp has that weird kind of, like, restless sleep dream sequence where his, like, paranoia is kicking in big time. Yeah. Uh, I think what it's doing is kind of, like, creating this thing where it's, like, okay, now Slotherp is free, but he almost doesn't know what to do with it. And that feeling that, like, you've been under the thumb for so long that, you know, every sort of shadow or creak sets you off in that way. You know, yeah. uh, so I think that what this chapter is doing or this section of the book, like besides being densely plotted and kind of like moving the story along, is putting us in that paranoid headspace of right. sloth ropes. Hey, everybody, it's me, your co-host, John. Thank you for listening to Slow Learners. And I hope you are making your way through the second part of Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, For a guest this week, I wanted to talk to someone who could help us illuminate this section of the novel. So I reached out to the filmmaker Alex Ross Perry. Now, Alex is probably best known for films like Listen Up, Philip, Queen of Earth, Her Smell, The Color Wheel, which is an incredible movie in my opinion. Um, And he was recently profiled in The New Yorker because he's making a sort of concert film slash biopic thingamabob about the indie rock band Pavement. And that profile referred to Pavement, the indie rock legends, as Pinchonian. But if anyone's Pinchonian, I'd say it's Alex Ross Perry. Why? Well, in 2009, Alex released his debut feature, which is kind of a riff on Gravity's Rainbow, and especially this kind of sloth rob in the wild section, called Impolex. Not Imipolex, but Impolex. Uh, it features a character named Tyrone S. in the scraggly woods, talking to a man named Laszlo, a woman named Katie, there's even an octopus. It probably all sounds familiar. So I wanted to talk to Alex about his film Impolex, and more generally, I guess, about how Thomas Pinchon has inspired his own work. Uh, this conversation kind of starts in media res, as they say, with us talking about John Le Carré and the notion of literary adaptations. Uh, But I think it's a good chat, and stay tuned to the end because you get a very juicy little biographical detail about our man, Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Jr. Okay, goodbye. Well, I'll talk about Pinchon in a second, but I just picked up my first Le Carré novel, which is Little Drummer Girl, and Mm -hmm. I've always always, made attempts... But we'll literally get three pages in, and this sounds so Philistine-ish, but I feel like the movie and miniseries adaptations seem so thorough and quality in a lot of the cases with Lake Array that I'll just be like, uh, I'll just watch like the George Smiley with Alec Guinness for the second time or something. Yeah. So I yeah, that doing both of those Alec Guinness series during the pandemic is what inspired me to finally read all of his books. But I'm doing them in order, so I haven't gotten to Little Drummer Girl yet. Although right. I have seen the Florence Pugh miniseries of it, but like I've seen the the, the Smiley miniseries, and this is like a this is not off topic. This is a relevant way of understanding my approach to trying to like swallow literature whole. 
I've seen the Smiley miniseries. I saw the Gary Oldman movie when it came out and I watched it again after watching the miniseries and reading Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy novel recently, I was thinking like the next time I watch the miniseries, I will fully understand this entire story. Right. Do you think that like, I, I have seen this story played out in a movie or TV show three times, totaling <laughs> over 10 hours. And I was reading the book thinking like, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I am not aware of the next development of the plot, even though I ostensibly know exactly how this story ends. And for me, like in terms of literature, that is something that I find to be rewarding. And La Carre is sort of like a lowbrow, quote unquote, version of like the sort of movie to literature pipeline that I have come to find very fascinating. And another example of that um, was, you know, as of like 10 or so years ago, I'd never read a Jane Austen book of which there are, you know, six novels. Right. And I set about to read one a year uh, and in like in the spring and like April and watch no fewer than if available two adaptations, a mini series and a movie and somewhere in the triangulation of a book that takes a week or two to read, a movie that takes one night to watch, and a miniseries that might take a week to get through, somewhere in there, I get it all. And right. thinking about how do you take a 400-page book, make it a seven-hour miniseries where you really don't have to trim anything? And then how do you put that into two hours where you have to trim a lot? And then what scene, what single moment is in every version of this book and what scene is only in one version has become a very rewarding way for me to sort of fully understand the book itself. And I, you know, after finishing Jane Austen, I started doing this with the Brontes and it's fascinating. You know, you can watch 10 Jane Eyre's, you can watch 10 Wuthering Heights. And then there's these Bronte novels that have never been filmed at all. And I read them cover to cover. And I feel like I don't even remember what happened in them, even though I've read them, the one I read last year, I read, uh, you know, The Professor last year. And I don't feel like it's stuck in my brain because the day after finishing it, I didn't watch a movie of it. Right. To give myself that extra, just like that layer of shellac on top of my memory that kind of puts the, the main plot and the characters and the locations firmly in my brain. And this has become for me, like with these bodies of literature that I'm woefully underread in or at least I was you know 10 15 years ago kind of the best way to just like see the way that a book and an adaptation can be in harmony and be in conflict with each other and it helps me just fully feel like obviously my brain is more wired towards understanding film as a storytelling medium not that I'm not a reader but I am a movie person first and foremost and doing both in tandem to me is is just a wonderful way to find your way in um even the, something weird like the joseph strick uh ulysses movie right. which i think is actually like pretty good yeah and like way better than it has any right to be um like even something like that does kind of help 
I, I watched the John Houston Moby Dick after reading Moby Dick for the first time this summer, uh, which I really enjoyed. But then it's like the true Moby Dickish adaptation is like the story of the making of that movie where like mm -hmm. John Houston is like going insane and it's sort of like has this Ahabish command or wannabe Ahabish command over the production. Uh, but I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about like the things that get pared down in the different adaptations. And I've been thinking about this with Gravity's Rainbow because as I mentioned, I read the book and then I wrote a 20,000 word guide basically for my own benefit. And then I just wrote like a 3000 word article about it. And it's like, okay, I'm trying to distill the book down to like a single point of light. But then in doing that, it's like the version of it that I have in my head or what's important about it. I feel like I'm cutting off a hundred thousand other things. Right. Um, but I, I'm wondering like, this might lead us into Impolex, I guess, but when you read the book and sort of, uh, wanted to make a run at it. I mean, what were the things about it that really stood out to you? Like what were those images that you wanted to distill onto the screen, you know, from the hundreds of thousands of available images in the book? Well, I don't really, I don't know. And I didn't really know at the time. It just, I, I read the novel and basically upon finishing it, um, like I just had this idea that I, should quit my job, which was a retail job. It wasn't like I, you know, it was like making a six figure salary. And just, I sort of felt like upon finishing the book, like I, I, you know, at that point I was just only two years out of film school and the book just kind of said to me, like you found the thing that's going to push you out the door. And I don't know how to explain that any better than it cast a spell and something, you know, some magical sorcery in those words and in what he was doing in that book it just sort of you know hypnotized me and made me feel like you know like to be clear the movie I made inspired by it is 70 minutes long like it is a a glancing uh illusion to the novel and to characters and moments and it just sort of, I, you know, it was, it was just like a magical thing that I don't necessarily, I don't have an answer for certainly not 15 years later, but um, there was just something about it that said to me, this is very personal, even though this is very indebted to a massive piece of work. And it became something that I uniquely felt would be a fun debut micro budget feature to try to make and that I could make and I knew how to do it and it inspired me. To, to set up Impolex a bit, I guess I'll just give a quick plot summary, which is that uh, it stars a character called Tyrone or Tyrone S played by Riley O'Brien, who is kind of adrift in the woods, uh, scavenging for rockets and rocket parts and has a series of kind of is it fair to say hallucinatory encounters with various characters? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and the thing that I've always responded to in it, watching Impolex almost feels less like it's recreating the novel than the experience of reading the novel, that kind of like drifty hallucinatory state. I mean, to get back to those sort of images or the things that you were latching onto, was there a feeling there that you were trying to communicate? Just exactly that feel. I mean, I... I'm experiencing reading this novel the way this character is experiencing walking through a hallucinatory world of the novel. And if I have one regret, like just that I realized a month after we made the movie 
it's that the the character's name should have been Thomas. Like that was the thing that I clearly should have done to make it like one of those funny kinds of stories that's like about the world of the brain of the story that you read. Right. And I still regret that to this day. Um, but you know, you can't you can't look back. But it was like, you know, I said to people at the time, this is not if you have to give a report on this novel you are not watching this 70 minute film and getting anything out of it. But if you, but, but if you wrote a, if you wrote a bad book report of this novel, that's pretty much what I adapted Right. where it's like, yeah, I think I kind of like read that it was this. And like, I skipped ahead a couple hundred pages. And then there was like this scene that I didn't really understand because I hadn't read the previous 100 <laughs> pages. So there's like this other thing. And then there's like, I saw this one character's name and I looked him up and he was a real guy. That was kind of like the, you know, it's just like just like a stone skipping across a, a lake, but the lake is the book and it, the stone it, is the movie and it skips like nine times and then sinks. It, it reminds me of, I think in the 80s, Chris Elliott did a bit. It was like a one man show about FDR, but the premise was that the guy performing it had only like skimmed the details of the biography of FDR. So he's trying to like piece together this whole life based on like trivia that you'd find like uh, on a paper menu at a chain restaurant or something like that. Like, yeah, that's so a good impressionistic. Idea. Yeah. I mean, or, or, you know, to cite something I don't l- like, like the Andy Warhol adaptation of Clockwork Orange, that's like 60 minutes long, not an adaptation, just sort of like a riff. I feel like at, at the time that I w- would have been making this movie, I was so just that was the kind of the world of a movie that I was interested in was something that I would see on 16 millimeter at anthology film archives that came like out of another planet from the sixties or the seventies had no reputation was kind of just a free form piece of art that was responding to things that I didn't understand, but now seems different. And that just seemed like an appealing project to undertake. And it's, it sounds insane now. And it kind of was at the time that I viewed this as even a remotely good idea, but I really just felt like, like sort of the, 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 the cornerstone that got even got me to pick up the book was that um, like a year prior in New York, there was a huge, at the time, I think like the first ever uh, in America, a huge Jacques Rivette retrospective at the Museum of the Moving Image. And they showed La Morfou, which I think is possibly even from like 71. It might be like within a year or so of the release of Gravity's Rainbow. Jonathan Rosenbaum at the time was one of the only critics who had ever or seen any of these Rivette films spoke before and after a number of the films. And he was saying that Rivette had this long fascination with trying to just put onto film what Balzac as a writer meant to him. And I had never read Balzac at the time. I found this to be a very fascinating notion. Obviously in his films, there's endless references to Balzac. And I think it's in out one that, Romare plays like a Balzac expert and just like talks about Balzac for 40 minutes. And and I found this to be very fascinating. And then Rosenbaum goes on to say that the closest literary uh, corollary to Rivette's style of filmmaking, which at this point I was like two months deep into just, you know, consuming every weekend was Pynchon. Right. And I just sat there thinking like, 
I've never read any of the, of course I know who that is. I know those books on the shelf at the bookstore, but I've never read one. I have, if that, if that is true, if what he's saying is true, and this is the, the film version of what that book feels like, I need to go get that. And I did. And then making the movie was sort of like, you know, I am to Pynchon as uh, Rivette is to Balzac in my mind at this time. Like it is just my attempt to sort of in the way that some of the Rivette films, like take the plots of Balzac books and set them against whatever the characters are doing. Anyway, they're putting on a play of Balzac. They're doing that sort of thing. I just sort of, I would have loved to have had the amount of resources to make something similarly ambitious about people that were literally engaging with the idea of a pinch on play or a film, but I didn't have those resources. So I just, I made the thing I could make, but it was, that was sort of the journey of me seeing these Rivette films that placed unadaptable literature kind of at the center of the character's obsessions and wanting to do that myself with the sort of absurdly micro budget means I had available. Yeah. I mean, to, to talk a bit about, um, that feeling of like doing it on a micro budget level. I think at the time, I think it was maybe around the time the color wheel came out, you did an interview with Dennis Lim where you're like, well, the way to adapt an unadaptable novel is to not try uh, or not, I suppose not try to like uh, apprehend the whole sort of scope of it. I mean, do you feel like there's a way that one could adapt gravity's rainbow in a way that gets at the whole story that gets at the whole scope that is uh, not impressionistic? Of course you could, and uh, you know, mileage may vary on uh, inherent vice or, you know, more recently something like white noise where the question is like, what do you gain when you, I mean, you know, an inherent vice at least is deliberately operating in a mode of like a plot driven detective story. So it lends itself to that. I think it was written for the screen in part, or at least with an eye towards adaptation. If so, that would be a very shocking twist at that point in his career. You know, he's obviously much like DeLillo uh, and really not like Franzen. Like, he's obviously someone who loves movies. You can just mm-hmm. tell this. Like, it's obvious that from a young age, he has found great entertainment value in movies ranging from artistic masterpieces of world cinema to absolute nonsense and Looney Tunes uh, and things like that. I mean, I can actually... I should have had this ready. Let me see if I can find this while while we're talking and I'll let you ask a question. While well, I, 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 I wanted to say to that, I mean, uh, there's this extent to which, and I think Rosenbaum has written about this, like Gravity's Rainbow is almost responding to a sort of anxiety about the novel not being a predominant form of literature and cinema and the mode of cinema kind of like overtaking it as the way in which uh, popular culture is communicated. I mean, I think the way the book is written has an almost like cinematic form of elliptical editing where you kind of move between characters and scenes in a way that's intuitive to movies there's the sprocket reel design which he kind of took out i guess and then there's also all the explicit references to films and filmmakers and how uh things that exist in cinema come to sort of occupy the real world whether that's like the schwartz commando film within the film or the real idea of like a 10 9 8 7 6 rocket countdown um and yeah I, I mean i you know it's fun to imagine what a movie would look but like again i know i was just kind of be smirching the Andy Warhol Clockwork Orange adaptation, but like the only adaptation that would be in the spirit of the book would be something made by a artist using film in that way. Right. Right. And 
it would probably not be very watchable or entertaining and it would live best as a museum piece uh you know more along the lines of like 24 hour psycho to cite a sort of another delillo text uh that, that plays into point omega but like it just it, it feels like it would be such a baffling endeavor but and yet so was making a 70 minute riff on it a, a truly baffling endeavor um I'm wondering that, that, that a... I did with complete confidence at the age of 23, as though this was like a logical and normal thing to do two years out of attending a prestigious popular film school was to make a $15,000 pension tone poem. Did, did any of your collaborators balk at the idea when you came to them with it? I don't think they knew or cared. I just, I not, I don't think a single one of them had read the book um, then or probably now, but uh, there's no balking. I wanted to ask because he plays such a big role. Well, he plays the key role in your film, but the, the part we're at kind of in the podcast now is, you know, the second section of the book where it's weird because rereading it, it's obvious, but reading the book the first time, it's kind of like not even clear that Slothrop is the main character until that second part of the book or that things will sort of revolve around him any more than they revolve around, you know, a pointsman or Katya or, or other characters that exist. And I'm wondering what if you can tell me how you approach the character of Slothrop, because he is kind of like cipherish and weird and hard to nail down on the page. And what, what was the sort of approach that you took? It's a very a very presumptuous question about the artistic intentions of a 23 year old. <laughs> um, I had no, I had, I had, I did not, I mean, I had not, the answer to that is no. <laughs> uh, right. I, you know, a friend of mine who I worked with in the video store, Riley just had this face and this physicality that just announced itself to me as something that we could really shoot a lot of. And the script for this movie was 25 pages long. Like I'm not writing scenes as I would now think of them in a writerly sense. I'm not writing character descriptions and somewhere around in my life, I have copies of that 25 page script and Sean who shot the movie. I remember I gave it to him. He said, all right, I'll look at it. I went over, talk about it. And he just said, I, I can't believe you would show people this and tell them that this is a document that they are supposed to understand because it was 25 typewritten pages on a typewriter that I Xeroxed and gave to people. And it was just like just images from the book, snippets of dialogue that are in the movie verbatim that I made up, uh, long passages of just like descriptions of history. And he just was like, I don't understand. Like, what are we supposed to do with this when we get there? And I then eventually made it into like a somewhat more readable thing. But even that was still basically the same length once I took out all the stuff that was non-visual. Um, but it really was just like picture myself in 73, 74, reading the book, putting it down, pulling out the typewriter, writing down a bunch of nonsense. And then in the morning looking at it and going, what is any of this? What is this? What 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 was I do? How how much caffeine had I consumed when I finished the book? What is all of it? What are these twenty five pages I wrote? Well, I should probably film all of them, and that was kind of the extent of my my thinking, uh, which is you know something you can do when you're twenty three that makes next to no sense. Right? Did you ever hear from Pinchon or anyone in the Pinchon camp about the film? No. No cease and desist. No, and you know it got like reviewed, and I maybe. 
be. It was in the review in the New York Times when it had like a nominal release. But I think, again, this is just my presumption, but if you're if you're that, right? If you're if you're him, if you're his estate or his publisher or whatever, you're not Salinger, right? You're mm-hmm. I mean, you are in one way that the public sees, but like how many pieces of interpretive art have been inspired by his work over the last, you know, now 50 years? Like I was not the first. This mm-hmm. was essentially an experimental film that I, you know, I, I could have easily explained that I spent my own money on this and I, I will never make a dime on it. Never made any money. This is again, like this is a seventies guy. Like he can easily picture going to see an underground film somewhere in San Francisco or New York or, or you know, outer Los Angeles in the seventies or in the eighties during, you know, who knows what he was doing at the time. And I think if you looked at anything about it, it was probably just like, this is harmless. And if we ignore this, this will mean nothing in the grand sense of like our project of making this novel culturally significant. And they were certainly right about that. Don't sell yourself short. I've had I mean, uh, I, I, I a have treasured like, intellects uh, file on my computer for over a decade. Well, I appreciate that. I was going to say, I, uh, I guess I, I guess it's cool that I am on the Wikipedia page for Gravity's Rainbow. I wanted to ask, because you talked about reading it and how it's like, okay, this is the thing that's pushing me out of the video store, Kim's video, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and is there anything about, you know, Pinchon or that spirit that still sort of influences your work or your approach? And I, I'm kind of asking because of like with uh, the Pavement musical, when I read that sort of uh, talk of the town with you in The New Yorker, there was something of that spirit to be like, I don't know, to to try to like fudge some sort of barrier between uh, the absurd and the real. I mean, is there a way in which Pinchon still speaks to you or speaks through your work? Well, not as much as I would like because it's an incredibly hard mood and tone to uh, sell out the flagpole when you have to convince people to to do something. They call pavement Pinchonian. They should be calling you Pinchonian. I know right? that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have other ideas of things I've tried to write or work on that, some of which are very, very closely inspired by a Pinchonian mode of storytelling and uh, not an aesthetic because his aesthetic is on the page. But like I have things like that that I, I, I have thought of and that I would still like to do. Um, it's very hard because for him, it's, it's a language, his own language is a language he's fluent in. And then his language is a language that somebody like David Foster Wallace spent a career teaching himself to be fluent in that language. I am not fluent in that language. So it's very challenging to tap into uh, how to tell a story in that way, because what way is that? Is that the way of Mason and Dixon or is that the way of the crying of lot 49? Like there's obviously you and I could talk about how there's a consistency in those works to most people. There is not. Mm -hmm. And nor is there a a, a further through line from those to bleeding edge, right? So like there's many ways to approach it. And I do enjoy thinking about like, what is the impression culturally of the Pinchonian pulse now, right? We're almost a decade removed from inherent vice, which I think is just clearly regarded as like an odd curio in PTA's ascendant career at this point and probably very very few people's favorite film of his so like I I do wonder what that means but this pavement movie I mean maybe I could now with that sense of encouragement make it more Pinchonian 
Right. But what would that but, mean? Uh, like, I'm always curious, like, what is the Pinchonian, you know? Well, you know, it's, I feel like these things typically get reduced to books that are just kind of inspired by an author or when something happens that just is very similar to something that happened in a, in a novel. Right. Then people describe it as such, but like Elon Musk, like is a Pinchon character. And a Pinchon name in a way. Yeah. I mean, that, that is obvious. I mean, I feel like when a Pinchon name pops up, like a Senator, like Kirsten Cinema. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, like stuff like that is very fun for people to, to latch onto. Um, but like, it is fun to think of, you know, you're just thinking of like, what are some odd news stories or odd characters that emerge in this sort of strange, modern, postmodern way that shines a light on some conspiracy hiding in plain sight that only someone who's brilliant or utterly insane would ever notice. Right. Like that's kind of the, uh, the, 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 the Pinchonian pulse to me um so yeah maybe i can make this pavement movie more like that why don't you tell me what you pulled down off your shelf there okay so of course you know and, and this is a, you know transitioning from what you were just saying like in as much as he's this mythic figure like the most telling thing about him is that he was on the simpsons right like, mm -hmm. we haven't mentioned that right like that is and, and you know there's like the notes that the writer said that he was like i won't insult homer homer is my hero right and like without giving any other public facing comments for half a century, has anything ever explained better what this guy is probably really like uh, than, than like he has done one, he has loaned his voice to two things in 50 years, a trailer for his own book and the Simpsons. Right. Two Simpsons episodes, I believe. He came but, back for a second yeah, I one? Yeah, th I think he did a second one in a similar thing where he's wearing the bag over his head and all yeah. that. But yeah, I mean, again, it's it's almost the Pinchonian, or again, maybe more like Delilovian, like inversion of the real person with a satirical cartoonish version right. of Right, I mean, that's that's a perfect thing. Like, Delillo, like, he would not drop in on The Simpsons. Delillo doesn't seem funny to me. Like, maybe but in he, the 80s a little bit. But Yeah, I will say, I mean, I, I got to know him a bit while I was unfortunately on my failed adaptation of the names that I was working on for over five or six years and we would see movies or get lunch regularly. I mean, he is funny. His books are okay. funny. Yeah. But he's like funny in like a old Bronx SOB kind of way. Right. Uh, I mean, he's not like a, like a slapstick guy, right? But like he wouldn't, he wouldn't drop in on the Simpsons. I don't think. Right. Um, I, think, I think you're right. But, but, it, but the fact that the pension did, and it, like, it's just, it's so telling. So, so this ties back. So I was working at Kim's um, before I quit to make Impolex. And Kim's had this policy, draconian policy, um, that every time someone paid with a credit card, you had to ask for ID because there are always people theft, you know, theft or whatever. And two times that this bit me in the ass uh, because of me just being checked out and trying to get through the shift is when I take the item, which was a Claude Chabrol box set, a Chabrol Hooper box set. There's a credit card on it. And I say, can I see some ID? And I look up at the person handing it to me and it's Helen Mirren. She has to hand me her ID and I'm deeply embarrassed of this. The second time, which is someone I don't recognize and I see their ID is Thomas Pynchon. Oh, wow. Buying uh, the Simpsons movie on DVD. 
uh, and I, I still have his receipt that I took. Oh, damn. Um, That's probably you know, worth $25,000 if you can uh, verify it. Wow. Yeah. I can't verify it and I never will. Right. Um, no, I mean, there, it's unverifiable it. and as, as a narrative, um, sounds apocryphal and Pinchonian in its own way. Yeah. But like, if it was, uh, you know, a box set of Russian silent cinema, I would, you know, you'd be like, no, I'm not sure that was him. Yeah. But the Simpsons but, movie of all things. Yeah. Yes. It, it, it is undeniable. I mean, un, you know, how, how, what do I recognize? Like a, an old man handing me a, it's not like I'm freaking out in advance. Right. And it's just one of those things like, uh, one of those encounters and you just keep your mouth shut and say like, okay, here you go. Here's your, you know, I do think it's one of those things where it's like, not only does he, is he explicit about not wanting to be bothered. And I think that if you like his work, you should respect that. Uh, but there's a sense that maintaining the mystery is a kind of like kayfabe that anyone in the literary community can engage in, in order to sustain and enrich that mystery. Nothing satisfying would come from him being like, I, you know, I'm in my 80s or how old is he? Like probably in his 80s. Yeah. 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 Nothing satisfying would come from him being like, I'm sitting down, I'm uh he's 85. Right. I'm doing like I'm gonna talk for 10 hours for a documentary and then they'll edit it. And finally, like I'll just give up the goat. Like nothing interesting would come from that. Is there something inherently desirable about being like, I don't want anyone to know anything about me. I want everything that I think and feel about the world to be interpreted through my works. Is that like de facto a preferable position that's just unsustainable nowadays? Well, it certainly is. I, I would say not that I, not that anybody's, uh, you know, either chasing me or requesting that I, you know, become more mysterious, but it just, like, uh, you know, I, I work a lot. I've done a couple of things, including one thing recently with the Swedish rock band Ghost. And for the first three albums, so like six years of their career, it was anonymous. It right. was a guy Papa in a mask. Emeritus one and Papa yeah. Emeritus two. Yeah. And to hear, you know, in interviews, to hear Tobias, who's, you know, it's, it's his band, it's his brainchild, tell it like it becomes a hindrance on your life and on your career to have people go to the library of Congress and look at the publishing, look, look at the name on the publishing masters of songs that have been registered just to like, it, it's not fun anymore because there's too many ways to pop the balloon. Right. Well, by sharing that receipt of him renting the Simpsons movie from Kim's video, you've increased the publicly buying. available buying, buying, but you've increased the publicly available information about Thomas Pinchon by about 8% just by Yeah. No, I'm that. happy to have one, little morsel but it felt very cosmic uh knowing that my my impolex journey was was about to begin um and also like because that movie is full of dumb humor and simpsons humor and simpsons type dialogue and simpsons editing like which is just in my dna like it just makes a lot of sense that this guy who wrote these you know whatever less than 10 books it just makes sense that he likes to kick back and laugh at the simpsons like everybody else Makes sense. Well, Alex Ross Perry, thanks for taking the time. And if anyone wants to check out Impolex, you can go on a pension-esque hunt to find it. Is there an easy way to find it and watch it? Not really. I kind of keep it out of circulation just because it's one of two of my movies that I own, so I can do whatever I want with it. Um, right. It was on the original Color Wheel DVD, which is out of print, but I'm sure 
findable and I'm sure it's torrentable, which I support. Um, but yeah, like we restored it a couple years ago. I restored it with the Criterion channel and we put it up on the Criterion channel for like six months or at the time it was filmstruck. Um, so I have that restoration that other than that, like six month run, I've never posted anywhere else uh, or, you know, streamed. Uh, you know, maybe maybe for the 50th anniversary, it's maybe maybe now that you've pointed this out to me, maybe it's time to uh, put it up somewhere. Thanks to Alex for coming on. And if you can scrounge a copy of Impelex, if you're curious, like Alex said, it's not really in distribution. But if you know where to find movies that are in distribution, you can probably find it. That concludes the first two parts of the book. So technically you're halfway done. You should feel amazing about yourself. And in the next episode, we're going to be reading part three in the zone, parts one through five. We're going to be talking about the Herrero people, about German African colonialism, and about a range of exciting topics. So we'll see you back there then for that. is written and produced by Asha Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asha Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Raina Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.